スロットンシュはい。I never thought I'd do, man. You know, it, it blew me away that, that that happened. So, congratulations. Yeah. Much deserved. I mean, you know, you've been at this like,、uh, is it close to not 10 years yet, right? But you're getting there, right? No, actually, you know, that's the funny thing, man. It's only been five years. Really? Wow. Really? <laughs> that's crazy. We just、uh, celebrated our fifth year anniversary with Shiro doing the podcast.、Uh, and our numbers aren't anywhere <laughs> near yours, but that's okay. I realize we are very niche, like what we do, you know? That is okay. Honestly, you know, you just keep plugging away at those videos. And I like a lot of the stuff that you put out. I like a lot of the angles that you come at. And of course,、uh, you know, you bring that knowledge back in the day. You have all these memories and stuff. And of course, we were honored to have you on. Early days, I want to say, like the first year of the podcast, we had you on for an interview and we were able to hear your story. Folks should go check that out. It's a really great interview and a really great insight into Mel's, you know, back history with the Saturn, how he, you know, the Saturn、uh, means a lot to him and stuff like that. So I, you know, wish you the best and, I, and I'm happy that、uh, you're able to do that and still do the family thing, you know, and make it all work. Yeah, it's, it's actually difficult too, because. One of the things when I first started YouTube that I had no idea about, man, was how much time you can sink into, you know, producing content. I had、I'm、no,、kidding. yeah, I had no idea like how much time video editing alone would take. And the impact on my family initially was really rough because I didn't really know. You know what, I was doing so I was spending so much more time doing that than really I should have, and it really impacted you know my family life. They were very unhappy that I was not around, yeah, as much as I should have been. So, you know, that partially contributed to that little break that I took there because I just realized that. I had so much going on. It didn't seem to be working out the way I thought. And then, of course, you know, I came back. All of the old fans just flooded back from the first channel and they helped it grow and expand so much faster. And then, boom, there I am with tens of thousands of subscribers. And, you know, it was so much more success than I ever thought that little channel. That、mm-hmm. covered the Saturn would ever be. Right. 
And the thing is, too, it's like uh, if you try to be a superhero and do them both, you know, like you try to be the family man and do all that and do, you know, your regular day job and you try to, you know, create content and you got so many irons in the fire. It's crazy. It like runs you ragged, you know, and I know that side of it, you know, just juggling a bunch of things at the same time. A lot of times people are just like, how do you do it all? You know, I'm like, I I feel like I'm just, you know, barely holding on (laughs) sometimes, but you know, you know, what are you going to do? Right. You know, when I had kids, I kind of realized it's like, if I want to keep doing stuff that I have a passion for, you know, I just have to do it. You know, I have to choose to do it and, and make it happen. You know, otherwise I'm just sitting around wishing that I was creating content like somebody else is, you know, or something like that. So, I mean, I kind of know both sides of it, but I definitely, I know what you're talking about. It's a very, very delicate balance, you know? And so I commend you for making it work. Uh, (laughs) It's not easy. And again, it's a learning thing, you know, you, you learn as you go. But yeah, you know, um, for folks listening, the reason I have Mel on with me is as we do on this cast, it's pretty much a nostalgia based cast. It's more like talking about our memories and our thoughts about Sega and about the Saturn back in the day. So it's very conversational. We do not have a script here. We're just flying by the seat of our pants here. And we're going to talk about Saturn's dying days. We're going to talk about 1998 and, you know, basically how the Saturn went out, uh, what our impressions were of it. And it's time on the market and then kind of like what we thought Sega could have done better. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah, that sounds perfect, dude. Well, let's start off then by me asking you this. Um, what did you think of the Saturn in 98? Or maybe we should start with 97, moving into 98, because I think we kind of saw the writing on the wall, didn't we? Oh, yeah. You know, when you look back at that time, you're starting to hear about Sega doing work with the Katana, the Dural. You know, you're starting to hear Sega's going to replace the Saturn. Magazine articles are being very clear that the Saturn days are numbered. You know, things are coming to a close and you really don't know, you know, at the end of 97, how much further things are going to go for it. And, you know, once 98 starts, it becomes very clear because after Christmas of that year of 1997, the release list for the Saturn just shrinks down to like literally what, like seven titles, eight titles It was pretty devastating. Yeah, it really was. And then all of a sudden, not only is the writing on the wall, but the path to the end is very clear. It's over. These are going to be the last games you're ever going to see released for the U.S. system. And, And man, that was devastating, man, because, you know, the Saturn didn't hit the U.S. until 95, so... Technically, the life of the system was three years. It was three years old when it died in the U.S. And for a mainline Sega system to get such little support, I mean, you got to really put that into context because, I mean, the Master System lasted longer in the U.S. than the Saturn did. Isn't that crazy? That's That's crazy. Crazy. And I mean, and you know how badly Sega did with the master system in the U.S. Yes, I do. I mean, I had one (laughs) friend who had that thing. And I mean, like Space Harrier was amazing, but it was like he was literally it. Like, And I I was probably the friend that somebody else had that was like the only guy who had a Saturn. But I mean, like 
The thing is, 98 was just a crazy year. First of all, there were a lot of distractions in 98. I, it, it was so complex, my feelings of in 98, because yes, it was like you said, it was devastating. At the same time, it's like now there's like PlayStation and the N64 in full swing, and they're pumping out some amazing games in 98 that are definitely kind of distracting me. Uh, but at the same time, it was like, Bernie Stoller's words in 97 were like a death knell. And then, of course, the last few games that we saw that trickled out, it was sad to see that list. But at the same time, some of those were real bangers, you know, so it was like my feelings are just so twisted when it comes to 98, because it was such a crazy year to be a Saturn fan. And then, of course, you had Dreamcast looming on the horizon and you'd read stuff about that. So so let me ask you this. You were there from the very beginning. This is not news to anyone who watches your channel. You were a Master System fan, you were a Genesis fan, and then Saturn fan from the very beginning imported the console on day one or close to day one, right? Right. Your ear was to the ground when it came to what was coming down the pipe for Saturn and stuff. Now, I admit that while I'm a huge Saturn fan today, I came in late. I was not even that big of a Sega fan. Um, and you know, I've told folks that I, I came in like Christmas of 96. So, so the end of 96, you know, with games like Daytona and Knights kind of hooked me and then I got a Saturn and the rest is history. But so coming in 96, I kind of felt like 96 was an amazing year for Saturn. Tons of great games. I was really hopeful. 97 felt kind of like a Hail Mary pass, you know, like 97, you'd read in the magazines about, you know, Sega versus Nintendo versus PlayStation, who's going to be the victor, you know, and it wasn't looking so great (laughs) for Sega. And of course, so 97 felt like this is the make it or break it year. We got to have a great year, you know, and then, of course, by the end of the year, you really started to feel, you know, certain things were said. And of course, you know, you could see just how well PlayStation was performing. And so as we came into 98 and we'd already heard that the Saturn wasn't our future, uh, what we had left was just a handful of titles. You want to talk about what they were? Oh, yeah, that was probably like you say, there was a bittersweet element to the end of the Saturn, because you knew that it was coming to an end. These were the last batch of games. And it and it was so great because every game that hit was worth playing and owning. And if a system ever went out with a bang of great titles, it was the Saturn, you know? I mean, you're talking about, you know, you got a great gun game in House of the Dead. You got a great RPG in Panzer Dragoon Saga. You know, you got a great action game in Burning Rangers. And I know a lot of people have mixed uh, feelings about it, but I thought Magic Knight Ray Earth was a great game, you know? And I mean, you got this stuff and... Not only was it an English version of games, a few of those games I had actually played the Japanese version of before I actually got the U.S. version. So they were infinitely more playable, of course, in English because I don't speak Japanese, but um, it really gave me an appreciation because I got to sit down and I got to play something like Burning Rangers. Mm. And I know Burning Rangers has its graphical issues with the clipping and the polygons dropping out but that gameplay was so incredibly unique i i had never played anything like burning rangers before you know you i was sit- not sold in the beginning well be well was anybody i mean when you first heard about it you it just was- thought 
a firefighting game? Like, what is this? Exactly. <laughs> and dude, I have to tell you, man, that that tutorial drove me to just want to cut it off because, you know, back then and at that time, I didn't know how to skip it. Right. So I'm just stuck in this tutorial like it's going on forever and all I want to do is play the damn game, mm-hmm. you know, and but dude, like you say, in the beginning, you didn't think so. But when you sit down and you played it, it was like, wow, this this has the mechanics and the setup of something you've never played before, even though the PlayStation was getting literally dozens of games every month. Burning Rangers still felt unique. When you played Panzer Dragoon Saga, Panzer Dragoon Saga felt unique. Well, can I stop you right there? Go. Here's what I can tell you, honestly, full disclosure, is that for me personally, by this time, you know, I got my Saturn in late 96. So I was just all in like this was going to be my system. I was going to support this thing, whatever I could do, you know, picked up a lot of games in 97, was really into it. And then, of course, like, as I was going to Barnes and Noble and importing the, you know, official Sega Saturn magazine, I was reading about, you know, what was coming down the pipe. And then I'm hearing about these games that are trickling in for 98, right? I'm hearing about Panzer Dragoon Saga, but it's not the next Panzer Dragoon game. It's an RPG. Ooh. I was mad. I was angry, actually. Ooh. Like, I was like, this is not, no, wait a second. <laughs> this is not what I want. And then I was like, wait, a firefighting game? Okay, so I love Knights and I love Sonic Team. But what are what is it like? I don't get it. My teenage mind was not imaginative enough, I guess, to figure out like how good this would actually be. You mentioned another one, House of the Dead. You know, this was like outsourced to Tantalus, and and of course, like GamePro just reamed it. Like they said that it was terrible because of the graphics, of course, and it was another kind of like Daytona USA situation where the graphics weren't great, but the gameplay was there. You know, it captured the arcade feel, you know, so, and it was also tough as nails, you know, so it had a lot of things against it. So like, I did not pick up Burning Rangers when it first came out. I waited, I didn't get it until later, if I'm being honest. And not only that, I want to know what it was like on the East Coast, but like a lot of these games, there weren't a huge supply of them. So it was like some of the game stores around town were ripping folks off for these things, like charging like 80 or 100 bucks for some of these games because they just only had like one copy. Did you sense that at all? Or was it, were they just like standard retail? Well, let me tell you how it played out for me. Yeah. I had friends that worked at Babbage's at the time. Right. And Babbage's back then was essentially what GameStop became. And, you know, these guys told me when I came in, because they knew I was a huge Saturn fan and they knew I was always buying games for it. And they basically told me, look, if you do not pre-order these games, you're not going to get them. And I was like, what do you mean? I've never had any problems getting Saturn games before. I mean, it's not like the system's popular. Well, that was when they were pretty upfront and said, we were told by our regional managers that Sega is basically making enough copies to cover a few per store Mm -hmm. outside of the pre-orders. So Mm -hmm. if you don't pre-order, the likelihood that you're going to get these games is very slim and they were not kidding because when it came time for these games to come out, yeah, 
they got in enough to cover their pre-orders, meaning there was nothing for the retail shelf. So if you didn't get these games, you know, through a pre-order, basically you were going to have to get them somehow secondhand. Yeah. And it was a nightmare. Dude, let me just throw this in here. I was so disgusted with Panzer Dragoon Saga the first time I played it. (laughs) Here, true story, no word of a lie. I returned it to Babbage's. Oh my God. Oh my God is right. Because it disappeared and I could not find the damn thing again for a very long time. So... I mean, it was one of those cases where the system's going out, Sega's not making a lot of games for it, and essentially, you missed it then, you were going to have to get it secondhand. Now, you could get lucky getting it secondhand down the road, but the likelihood is is that it was going to take a year or two later before it reappeared on places like eBay. You know, and and even then, back then, all those years ago, it was still commanding $60, $80 for a Saturn game, which in like 99, 2000 was ludicrous for yeah. a U.S. game to cost that much. But that was like, I mean, even retail on some of these games was crazy. I mean, I'll tell you, like towards the latter half of 97 and I, I practically lived at my electronics boutique in the mall you know that was kind of like because i knew those guys and that's where i kind of hung out i, oh, I went yeah. to a couple other stores too you know especially like used game stores but like whenever it was a new title you know and big box pc games were huge of course you know and then of course playstation and n64 had ample shelf space and and caps and and standees in front of the store but like you wanted right. saturn it was you walked to the back of the store on the side of the wall. There was like one little rack and that was the Saturn stuff. And it wasn't even it wasn't even a full rack. It was like, here are the peripherals and other crap. And right. here's like the Saturn games. There was like a single copy of Enemy Zero that I was eyeing. And as a kid, I was like still like working a job where I didn't make much, you know. So it was like I had to ask my uncle actually to, to get that one for me. And uh, he did. But that was like a. $70 game, Enemy Zero, four right. disc game. And then, of course, Lunacy, you know, was another late one that uh, right. commanded, I don't know, like 60 bucks, $69. It was crazy. Some of the retail prices on them. I guess, I guess in hindsight, like $60 is not that crazy for certain games, you know, I, I guess if it's a blockbuster title, but that's if a, it's a blockbuster title. I mean, these were like the lone Saturn game that like nobody <laughs> cared about. I, and that's right. the funny thing as I was able to tell my uncle to buy that game and he would go back like three weeks later and the game was still there because nobody else wanted it. I was like the only crazy dude that wanted this enemy zero or whatever. But yeah, that's basically how it was going out into, into 98. It was like, they were lucky if they got one or two copies of these things. Right. But it's funny because I guess Toys R Us didn't get the memo because as a toy store, like they overordered on Panzer Dragoon Saga and I ended up finding it later at Toys R Us on clearance, which was crazy. And now I'm kicking myself that I didn't buy more than one copy. But of course, <laughs> what did I think I needed with more than one copy of that game back then? You know, exactly. You know, that's that's one of the things that every single gamer that is passionate about it and has loved something has a story 
where they have passed up something. Oh my God. That yeah. would, that would be worth a fortune. I mean, I you can never- give you my quick story about, there was an old toy store that was, I think it was actually affiliated with uh KB toys. It was called toy works. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm familiar with it. And I walked in there and this had to have been, I want to say this had to have been 97, 98. And I walk into this place and they have a row of Dracula X for the super Nintendo, like 20 of them sealed in box. <laughs> now, Oh my God. Now, dude, First of all, they were marked down to $20 yeah. and they were all, you know, it's, it's a retail store. So they were all sealed. Now, sure. now I bought one, I, I bring it home. And of course I think nothing of it. I open it up, but years later, if you're familiar with Dracula X for the super Nintendo sealed copies oh. now go hundreds and hundreds of dollars and they're sitting in that store was literally 20 copies of it that I just bypassed without a yep. second thought in the world. And it's like, if you, you'd have like your kids college paid for, if you, just, <laughs> if you just, but I mean, that's the thing is you like, as a kid, it was like, you just wanted to buy more games. You know, yeah. it's like, you're not thinking like an investor or anything. Of course, all those big box, uh, earthbounds, you know, right. <laughs> those were like, those were really cumbersome too. And the stores, like they'd over order some and then they'd like stay on the shelf. Cause people would be like, oh, this is such a weird game. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh my God. But okay, we're not a super Nintendo cast. Although I could <laughs> talk forever about the super Nintendo, oh, but, yeah. but yeah. So I mentioned distractions. Okay. So I was really devastated. I really was devastated to find out that this console that I really only just fell in love with really it was like long story short my dad the playstation was really more his than it was mine you know he's a professional musician he was constantly going on the road to play shows and stuff and so he'd take the playstation with him so he had something in the hotel room you know right (laughs) which is how he would always school me on like medal of honor and stuff because he got more practice on it than i did um but anyway so it's like i needed my own console and so the saturn was kind of like my own identity right you know that was like this feels unique to me you know and i'm like the only person i know that actually even gives a damn about this right. machine. And and so I was really gutted when I found out that the Saturn quote unquote wasn't our future and that they're going to start pushing in a different direction because at that point I'd been hearing about, Oh, we're going to try to have this add on, you know, this black belt add on that'll, uh, you know, breathe new life into the machine and we'll have like virtual fighter three, you know, which I thought was an excellent game in the arcades. I thought that would be amazing on the Saturn, you know, and then to find out that no, in fact, uh, they're just going to turn off the lights, shut everything down and, and kind of go into hibernation for a year while they develop this new console. I was devastated, but at the same time, it was strange because then there were like all these new games coming out, like Metal Gear Solid, Gran Turismo and Final Fantasy seven, you know? So I was quite distracted at the same time, you know, with that and girls. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, that was probably one of the things that uh, I had always been importing with the Saturn. So I still owned a PlayStation and Nintendo 64 while I was playing my Saturn. So like you said, I wouldn't say I was distracted, but I was definitely I would buy my Saturn games 
as they were released in between playing the big games for the PlayStation and N64, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a little bit older than you. So yeah. you know, I had the, I had the great fortune by the time the Saturn yeah. comes out, dude, I'm 20 years old. You know, right. I'm living on my own. I have a nice paying job already. So the PlayStation, mm-hmm. Nintendo 64, they were not out of reach for me. I could own all three of those consoles and support mm-hmm. them. So, you know, my disappointment was just more Sega was letting the console die. You know, I wanted to see it do more. I wanted to see where they could take it. But, you know, the reality was is that the system, like you said, nobody wanted the thing in the United States. Its games stayed on the shelf. It wasn't selling hardware units. This machine was going to die whether you wanted it to or not, you know? And once you hit that realization, that was the terrible part of it because you knew, you knew there was nothing Sega was going to be able to do to stop this. And that was all there was to it. You know, what you call as a distraction, uh, as gamers, man, you've got to live on. You moved Mm -hmm. on to the PlayStation you want it to play, uh, you know, you want it to ex- keep... Ex- I think it just softened the blow a little bit. Yeah. You know? It made it so that I wasn't like, you know, I was able to kind of like focus on other things without being too, you know, heartbroken. But at the same time, like, I was really crossing my fingers for the Dreamcast. I was like, okay, Sega, you guys got to just knock this one out the park because, <laughs> like, seriously, guys, you know. And, and of course, like, you read about the Dreamcast in OSSM, you know. Uh, they started giving you previews and started showing you like the faces of the the CEO and stuff rendered in 3D. And you're just like, wow, this thing looks amazing. Like if it's half as good as they say it's going to be, you know, the Dreamcast to me was like the Saturn to you. I had finally come into my own in terms of like working a really good job that where I just had nothing but disposable income to throw at that console right. and, and even the PlayStation too. Yeah. So whereas the Saturn was like, I had a job, but it was just paid really lousy and I scra- I had to scrape together to, to buy games. You right. Know? Actually for me, that would have been the Sega Genesis. Yes, you know, yes. I had my little yep. pissant job. I was scraping yep. together money to buy games and that's rad. That's rad. Yeah, man. And you know, I would I would take a couple of the games that I bought and I would parlay them with classmates and friends into more games, oh, yeah. you know. You know yeah. you know how that went. Of course, <laughs> you know. And uh, you know, you try to use reverse psychology to get. <laughs> so you're oh like, yeah, you, you don't want that. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah, give that to me. Yeah, you got. Oh. You have to totally play up some terrible game you have. Oh, you've got to play oh, yeah. it. The graphics are so good. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm guilty. I, I am. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like my little brother, I kind of dragged him along for the ride. I don't think he, without me pushing him to be because i needed somebody to be like a saturn fan right like just somebody to talk about it i don't think he had really had any active interest but like he was just like okay fine fine you know i'll i'll dig into this console with you but like he he was more like playstation nintendo 64 interest you know right but yeah no it's just crazy i mean i know we both love this console so much but damn it if it isn't like the most complicated, <laughs> you know, in terms of its history and just it's kind of like being a, a fan of a, a really hard luck sports team. You know, it'd be so much easier if I was just like a 
no offense to anybody who's a Yankees fan out there. But <laughs> sometimes I think to myself, like, why do I have to be a Padres fan, right? You know, we don't even have a World Series. I, it'd be so much easier and straightforward if I was just, you know, cho- chose a, a better horse, you know? Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, I, I love it. You know, I absolutely love it. I the, the Saturn was the gamer's console, really. Like, I had one other friend that I knew later in a technical – like my senior year of high school, I was doing 3D animation, you know, right. um, I knew another kid in this technical class that I had uh, who was a Saturn fan and he was gearing up to get the Xbox like that. He was jumping from the Saturn to the Xbox and he was kind of very, very much a serious gamer wow. and excited about the kind of like gameplay that the Xbox was going to provide. Um, and it just seemed to me like the Saturn was that kind of console where it was just like, y- y- if you know, you know. You know, and if you don't, you're just basically focusing on whatever's the loudest, you know? Right. Yeah. You know, I think that for a lot of people, I I know for me specifically, the Saturn was the console that really, it gave you the feeling of the arcade at home. And I don't, I don't think that that is something that you can easily look past because while the PlayStation, of course, was giving us these new experiences, Mm-hmm. I think that the Saturn was providing that, you know, I think that's why a lot of older, you know, fans of the Saturn loved it so much was because that was really the first time you sat down and popped a game in and it was like, oh my God, this actually looks and sounds just like the arcade. And a lot of its two dimensional games were like that. You know, absolutely. And I think that really drew people to it to import. I think that's why it had such a strong import community back then, whereas a lot of other systems didn't really have that yet. I mean, you have to remember there was a time in like 1996, 1997, you could go into a Babbage's or a software, etc., or an electronics boutique, and they had Japanese Sega Saturn games on the shelf. Yes, yes. And I mean, think about that. <laughs> it's crazy. I, I mean, I remember reading about Radiant Silvergun in the official Saturn magazine, and and that's one of the things I really liked that they did try to like incorporate reviews and stuff for right uh, Japanese import games because that's pretty much all we had. You know, if we if we wanted any hope of supporting the system. You, you had to import. Now, I, I I know you were importing even all the way back on the Genesis. I did not start importing until the Dreamcast with like Shenmue 2, the, the PAL copy of Shenmue 2. And then, of course, after that, I was just like, importing is great, you know. But like, I again, yeah, I was not as dialed in, uh, you know, with the with my local game store and the whole like, you know, talking to them about, you know, like importing games just was not something on my radar, funny enough, you know, and maybe that just comes with age. I don't right. Know. But, but yeah, for sure. Like I still, like you said, every once in a while I would see like a random Japanese game on the shelf and I'd be like, where, what is this? This doesn't look like any kind of Saturn game I've seen, you know, but yeah, that, that's, yep. that is one of the cool things, but you know, you mentioned arcade games and we did get toward the end of 97. I don't know if it was, it was 97 winter heat. Right. And that was really nice. I mean, some of those 3d uh, Saturn titles that were arcade games, like pure arcade action, button mashing, you know, uh, were, were really, oh, yeah. like you said, just crystallized the arcade experience at home, excellent graphics, high resolution modes, you know, much of the time, you know, 60 frames per second fluid. Like you didn't see that on the, on the PlayStation at all. And just felt so good with a, with an arcade stick, or even the, you know, regular six button controller. 
but it was a paradigm like because if you didn't care about the arcade then you didn't care about the saturn you know if you did because the saturn had a lot of blind spots too like it didn't it had some good sports games but it never really had a great football game i mean madden 98 did that actually come out in 98 or was that at late 97 that was a 97 that was 97 right okay so uh nhl 98 was 98 i think um how do you feel about madden 98 by the way i i mean madden 98 is a decent football game i mean Sega really did a terrible job with NFL 97. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, it's bad. yeah, I, I, I can't stress enough how bad that game is. This is Sega we're talking about. They were coming off of the Genesis where internally or, you know, through the companies that they use to publish you know, where they publish their games, Sega made some of the best football games during the 16 bit generation. And to turn around and publish and release NFL 97, man, was a smack in the face to every Sega sports fan because you walked into it having no clue what you were getting into, you know, and it was awful, man. And really the only saving grace we had was that Electronic Arts released Madden 97 and Madden 98 on the Saturn, which were still decent football games at the time. Right. Yeah. There were folks who were like big fans of the EA titles. They were. Um, I thought they were decent. I was never like a huge fan. Uh, obviously, like when the Dreamcast came and you had the NFL 2K series. <laughs> yeah. I thought that those were amazing, like blew me away. I'm definitely a sucker for like Sega sports games, but uh, obviously not NFL 97. <laughs> right. but, but yeah, you know, it was enough to alienate a Sega fan, you know, like some of the, you know, BS that Sega pulled. It was like, OK, now I'm a huge Knights fan. I am. But I get how angry some folks were that that's what they got out of Sonic Team instead of a the Sonic game that they'd been promised, you know. So it was like with the Saturn. You kind of have to get used to the fact that it, Sega was like, OK, you know, all that great stuff that you liked on the Genesis. Yeah, well, we're not going to do any of that. <laughs> we're just going to do like all of this new stuff. And you either decide that you like it or, you know, kick rocks. <laughs> yeah, let, let me put it to you this way. Every single time I'm on YouTube, I see a new video about why Sega failed, why the Saturn failed, sure. why this failed with Sega, whatever. Getting kind of old, right? <laughs> well, not only is it old, but it's always wrong. Right. The truth of the matter is, is that Sega and everything Sega Touch failed because Sega was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with its fans yeah. every generation. Yep. You had a master system that had a group of games. On the Genesis, very few of those titles moved over. On the Genesis, you had a group of games people loved. On the Saturn, very few of those Genesis games moved over. And every single generation, it was like Sega completely reinvented itself. They Mm -hmm. were basically saying, we know these games sold the previous generation, but we're going to go completely in this other direction and we're not going to make any of those titles and it was that's so true and it's just it's just like dude how do you carry fans like that can you imagine if nintendo never made another zelda after zelda can you imagine if nintendo never made another pokemon after pokemon or game freak technically but nintendo never released another pokemon 
Right. I mean, yeah. to think that you have to, it's, it's unimaginable. It would, it, Nintendo would not be what Nintendo is today had that been the case. And another thing people don't realize is, is that Nintendo was able to perfect its craft by releasing these games almost like an evolution of one another. Mario 1 evolves to Mario 3. Mario 3 evolves into Mario World. These games get bigger. They get better. The play mechanics mature. Sega's reinventing itself every damn generation. So it's basically, they're hitting the restart button. And it's just like, let's try again. And it's just like, oh my god, dude, what are you guys doing? Yeah, Nintendo is probably one of the most conservative companies when it comes to gaming. You know, I mean, conservative with their money, just conservative with the amount of time that they'll spend on something like honing it like a very fine edge katana until it's ready. You know, and it's like and we don't care if we miss an entire, uh, you know, console generation launch. Uh, You know, if we have to just wait and make sure that this, you know, that Mario 64, when it comes out, actually feels great you know it doesn't feel like croc for example it doesn't feel like tomb raider one where you have to kind of like sidle several (laughs) steps and kind of like you you kind of have to like inch to the edge and you're like oh oh crap i just fell off now i gotta get back on they're like we'll do whatever it takes to protect our reputation as a fine games maker you know we we make fine games that are like aged to perfection right you know right like and when they're ready they're ready you know at least that's for for the most case that's what nintendo would do you know and and of course like you said they're franchises now they're guilty though like f-zero they've really let that franchise just hang and and uh shrivel on the vine but um but for the most case they have been good with their franchises and um, they've given them plenty of love and longevity. But yeah, you're right. You know, you're right. It, it, Nintendo just or Sega just kept flipping the switch and saying, hey, you know, let's try this. Let's go in this completely opposite direction. And it's a wonder that there's folks like us who love all of the different console generations of Sega. Like, I love the Genesis. I love the the Saturn and I love the Dreamcast. There's And even the Master System, although that's I can't really speak that much about the master system. <laughs> right. being honest, every, everything that I've experienced with the master system has pretty much been in, in, in retrospect, minus a few times going over to my weird friend's house. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but I mean, yeah. One other thing I will say that really uh, ended up shooting Sega in the foot time and time again was that they were brilliant when it came to like hardware innovation and stuff, but they were always just a little bit too early to the party. You know, like they would start the party, but no one would show up, <laughs> you know, because they were too early, like with the Netlink stuff, you know, Netlink is phenomenal. It's amazing. But again, it wasn't that supported and it was way too early. Of course, you know, online gaming wouldn't really come into its own until like the PS2. And I mean, I got in on it with, uh, you know, Fantasy Star Online and the Dreamcast, and I thought it was amazing. But like most of my friends weren't there with me until it was like PS2 and they released the LAN adapter. And, and then folks kind of got it finally. They were like, oh, so calm online, you know, or, right. or whatever, you know. Sega was just always just too early, you know, <laughs> even with the Dreamcast, it was like they worked hard on it and they made an amazing console. But then they stubbornly left out a DVD drive, which would have been honestly better copy protection for the for them than the oh yeah i don't know i'm, I'm getting into the weeds here no, but no. it's just one of those things you know actually man i i agree with you and 
you know, to really understand what the heck was going on with Sega with releasing hardware kind of in between, uh, you know, generations, you really have to go back mm. and understand that Sega only ever had one single hardware platform that performed well, you know, in terms of worldwide sales. And that was the Genesis and Mega Drive. Mm. And go back all the way to their first console, the SG-1000. The whole reason why there's an SG-1000 and a Sega Mark III was because Nintendo was absolutely destroying Sega with the Famicom and the NES. So Sega releases what early? The Genesis. The Genesis. Yeah, right. it's early. It's early. And it's amazing. But it's it's so early that like by the time Nintendo gets around to releasing their 16-bit, then you know Sega's really having to like push you know blast processing to, <laughs> to catch up. And, and people don't really appreciate that, man. The Genesis was on the U.S. market two years before the Super Nintendo. Absolutely. Think about that. Eighty-nine. Yeah, yeah. Think about that for a moment. They were there two years, and for those of us that early adopted into that Genesis, it was a great time. But when the majority yeah. of the people in the 16-bit era really began buying consoles, the Genesis had started to show its age. You know, the Genesis. Ha- I mean, the uh, Super Nintendo had this nice you know, a uh, sound chip that could reproduce instruments and, and handle samples. The Genesis was FM based when it came to sound. So it was much harder to get that thing to sound good. Absolutely. And Especially if you were using the wrong tools, which a lot of people were. Absolutely. <laughs> and of course you have to remember the Genesis was working with a color palette that was much weaker than the Super Nintendo. So of course people yep. would see something like Mortal Kombat 2 on the Genesis versus Mortal Kombat 2 on the Super Nintendo. And it was like, oh my God, man, that's a huge difference. And then the Genesis popularity begins to wane. It begins to fall off. Mm -hmm. And of course, where is Sega? Sega's just going to jump right in with the Saturn again early. Or the 32X. Oh, man. You know, at least the 32X was an add-on, though, you know? But here's the thing. The Genesis could be perceived as, like, a terrible system or the absolute best system ever, depending on what games you got as a kid. If you got Bare Knuckle or, uh, you know, Streets of Rage 1 or 2, you know, you thought it was amazing. If you got, you know... Give me a terrible Genesis game. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a bunch of them, but I mean, <laughs> there you go. Or like any of the, you know, any of like the Aladdin copies, you know, cause Aladdin was cool, but then it was like, you had like a million really, really boring platforming games with like the verticality thing going on. Right. No offense, Virgin, but they just kept churning out those games, you know? Uh, and, 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 a, and a bunch of other stuff like that, where the music sounded like farts and stuff like that. But, and, and the same can be said for Sega CD. You've got some people out there that think Sega CD was like this terrible console. And I'm thinking like, well, you just must have been playing the crap games because there were a ton of great games on the Sega CD. Right. You just didn't buy them. you know. And that's the problem is like maybe Nintendo kind of controlled that a little bit more. Like what would be released on the console? I don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Or maybe they just marketed the better games much better. Well, you, know? you actually bring up a really good point about Nintendo. You you mentioned earlier they weren't carrying along the, the F-Zero games. And, you know, now you're saying they were more picky about what they made. 
But Mm -hmm. really, when you look at the two companies, they couldn't have been more different because Sega published orders of magnitude more games than Nintendo ever published. Hell, if you if you go back and you take into account the SG-1000, the Mark III, the Genesis, Saturn, and Dreamcast, I bet you Sega published more games on those consoles that have been dead for 20 and 30 years than Nintendo has in its entire existence up to modern times. I don't doubt it. Because I don't doubt it. They're, they're like, does it boot? It ships. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you know, that was a big problem, dude, because yeah. there was a quality discrepancy between the best Sega published games and the worst Sega published games that Nintendo has never been guilty of. Well, save the Wii, right? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, even then, the stuff Nintendo did themselves was mostly was pretty phenomenal. good. Yeah, you know, it, I'm actually a big Wii fan. There's a gr- <laughs> there's a bunch of great, uh, dare I say, hidden gems on that console. But yeah, but there's a lot of crap too. You know, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think that was really Sega's biggest problem too. When you really look at it, it was Sega's problem with the Saturn as well. Because Sega began to publish stuff like Battle Arena Toshinden in the U.S. And it was just like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Number one, you're late to the party. Number two, it looks worse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, who are you hoping to impress with this garbage? Why, are, why aren't these resources being spent on something else? And back then, we were hypercritical about graphics. And I said this to Peter the other day, like, I'm, I'm more graphics agnostic now. We live in a day and age where games are literally being published simultaneously with different kinds of graphics, you know, retro, throwback, gra- you know, like, it doesn't really matter as long as the gameplay is there, as long as the story is there. But like back then, our minds were being blown every day, like seeing new stuff, you know, and 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 seeing the bar constantly being raised in terms of graphics that it can't be understated how much that mattered. And so we weren't stupid when we saw something like, you know, Toshinden with like the mesh transparencies and just kind of janky. And then you looked over at PlayStation with something like, you know, Tekken or something, and it just looked better. You know, um, we certainly weren't fooled by that stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that the the consumers and the press were almost too hypercritical of graphics because sometimes it would uh, it would result in a poor review that doesn't really hold up today. You know, you get poor reviews of 2D games that are phenomenal, but oh, it was 2D. So it wasn't, you know, cutting it. Right. Right. That's one of the downsides of uh of that era that we went through, you know, it was, it was disruptive. There was seismic change going on, but again, everybody was really hyper-focused on 3d and polygons. And so it was like, if, if folks were still, you know, sticking to the craft of, of 2d hand-drawn animation, you know, then it was just, it was off. Right. You know, but you had these amazing, you know, like Marvel versus Capcom uh, or Marvel superheroes, you know, Amazing games with like hand-drawn sprites. And of course the Saturn had the power to push it. Games like Dragon Force. Right. And I get, you know, I realize that a lot of those are like 
just duplicated sprites, you know, copied sprites running around on the screen. But still, like you see a hundred sprites running around on the screen. You didn't two hundred sprites. Two, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Both armies had a hundred, right? So you had two hundred right. sprites running around on the screen. You didn't see anything like that on the PlayStation, and you wouldn't. No, the PlayStation couldn't have done Dragon Force. I've had people argue with me that it could. Absolutely not, man. The PlayStation's, you know, 2D was limited by its polygon mm-hmm. fill rate, and there was no way it would be able to do 200 sprites no. the way the Saturn not was that able frame to do it. Not, not, no. not like that. Yeah. It was like butter on the on the Saturn. There were some, there were a couple areas in that game that would slow down, but for the most part, yeah. it was very playable. Um, yeah. But, you know, speaking of Dragon Force, which is like an RPG, strategical RPG, um, we did get an, an excellent rpg it's one of the most like blitzful games that i I mean like and i'm oh yeah you know what i'm talking about shine and we only got one part of it too like we we thought we got the game but we actually really only got like the appetizer and that was shining force 3 one of the very final titles uh the final title from sega themselves right oh yeah yeah that was one of those games where It's really hard for me to talk about RPGs of this era because, number one, I was really picky. And number two, I was coming from a very arcade-centric background. So RPGs really weren't my thing really until about the mid-90s when I started playing more of them. And that was because a lot of good ones were coming out and they you know, they got my attention, you know, the Chrono Triggers, the Final Fantasy 3, the, you know, games like that. I'm starting to pay attention more to RPGs. And of course, you know, Fantasy Star 4 was on the Genesis. And these games are starting to really pique my interest. And, you know, I go through the life of the Saturn. I'm playing the RPGs that it's getting. I'm really starting to get into the genre. And then Shining Force 3 hits. And it's a turn-based mm-hmm. RPG. So, you know, it doesn't have those random battles because you know how Shining Force 3 progressed. You'd get this area where you could explore, talk to people, then a story cinematic would hit and then it would roll into a battle. Right. And you'd beat the battle and then you'd repeat it and and do that kind of thing. And and I ended up loving that kind of game for it. But I love that game even more because it was one of the few games that really took advantage of the Saturn. Mm-hmm. You know, all those graphics, man, were incredible. You know, it used the sprites so that the game world could mostly remain in 3D. You know, you could move that game world around. You could see every corner. It was kind of like Grandia in that respect. Yeah, it had the isometric. uh, You could use the shoulder triggers to kind of like rotate. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that engine was that that engine was made for the Saturn. You you put 2D details like, you know, characters and and, you know, the other little things in the environment. And then you leave that polygon, you know, processing to just do the environment itself. Mm. And it, it, it came it turned out with a great frame rate. It turned out with great color. The textures were great. The sprites looked incredible. Yeah. 
And the story was incredible. You know, you start out with this story where immediately you're gripped. It's like, you know, these kingdoms are sort of being drawn into this war by this nefarious group. And it's like, man, I really want to kick that group's ass, you know? And, you know, you're totally into it. Like that game was so good. And like you said, we only got the first one of it. Yeah. I didn't even realize there were more than one parts to it, even as an importer, right. because I didn't I didn't pay any attention to Japanese RPGs most of the time because I couldn't play them. And they edited you the know? game to kind of like change the <laughs> change the ending yeah, and make yeah. you think that that you'd seen everything there was to see, you know. So oh yeah, yeah, which was kind of a cheap <laughs> cheap trick, but I mean, I, I'll take that you know, instead of nothing, but I mean, I'm so, of right. course I'm so glad that we're able to like play that the game translated now. Uh, thanks to Knight of dragon actually. And, and his team, you know, the, the shiny oh, man. In, yeah, invaluable man. If any of those people are listening, you did a service to the Saturn community that can never be repaid. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's the way to play it too. Like if you guys have never played shiny force three at this point, you should just skip over the, no offense, but skip over the one that we got, you know, and, and play yeah. the translation because they were able to put back in the the proper dialogue and the story and everything like that. And that's the way you should experience it, you know, one, two, and right. three. But I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Back when I was reading the magazines, I, and of course, magazines were huge back then. The internet was still kind Absolutely. of in its infancy. So 98, I really do feel like 98 was the year when a lot of folks kind of started getting the internet if they didn't already have it. Uh, you had right. movies like You Got Mail that came out in 98, you know, so it was like, okay, AOL, like people are starting to get the big box PC, you know, and, uh, you know, Windows 98 and they're starting to get on AOL or CompuServe or whatever. But the thing is, even then, if you visit a web page, it was crude by you know <laughs> anybody's standards today. You know, it was just it was an image map or just a tiny little thing that gave you very sparse information. Oh, I don't yeah. think you even had online commerce, and if you did, it was incredibly insecure and it was very crude by today's standards. But um, it wasn't like right. people were a whole bunch of people were buying stuff online. Honestly, you're as a kid or as a teen, you were going to the grocery store, the checkout stands, you were going to your game stores or your comic book stores, and you were looking in magazines because that's like really where we got all of our information. At least I can say that's where I did. And no word of a lie, I kind of didn't think that Shining Force 3 looked that great. Like everybody kept saying, this game, the graphics are so great, you know? And I'm just like, I don't get it because like these screenshots aren't selling it for me. They look kind of janky. I'll admit, I think that this game looks amazing in motion, but whenever I see it in a screenshot, it just doesn't really sell me on it for some, for what, like, yeah. whatever reason. But trust me, folks, like Shiny Force 3, you sit down with this game and you sink any kind of significant time into it. It's bliss. Like it really is an excellent gameplay experience. Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. The way you want to play this is, is go and get the translated, you know, games and play them that way because it's really cool the way the story works. Because when you start out with the first uh, Shining Force 3, you're actually meeting characters in the story Mm -hmm that are going to play a much bigger role in episodes two and three. Exactly. You know, and it's really cool because you'll meet these folks 
And then it's like when you start up the next episode, it's like, hey, wait a minute. I remember this person. And it's like, oh, so I'm now going to play this episode from their point of view. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and then that's when it really starts to click to you. You're playing these episodes from points of view. You know, how did this play out from this group's point of view? Then it's like over here. Well, how did this play out on the other side? What were they doing while you were playing that other game Mm -hmm. of Shining Force 3? And it goes together so well. I mean, it's a trilogy of games and these are full game experiences, too. I mean, it's going to take you a while to beat each one of these. Yeah, and some of the missions you get set up, you'll lose, and you'll have to start over and say, okay, like, how do I tackle this from a different angle? So, or, you know, what moves can I make so I can get across the train tracks and get, you know, everything in time, you know? So, you know, you will fail, but I feel like it's one of those games where I didn't mind playing it over and over again and kind of like trying to refine my strategy. And then once you get it and you're like, that's the answer. It's almost like a puzzle, you know, right. a lot of these specific battles or specific missions are set up like a puzzle, you know, and there's like a solution right. or at least there, there, there might be a couple different solutions, but certainly ones that work better than others. And, you know, so it was just a phenomenal game and, and really like one of those last, you know, I mean, the, the Saturn didn't have a whole heck of a lot of great RPGs on it, but this was definitely one of them for sure, yeah. you know, and, and stands up there, I think with games like Final Fantasy seven, Folks may not agree with me, you know, because I think that's a great game, you know. Um, but I think that I think that Shining Force Three is every bit as good. Yeah, the way I see it is, I, I, I mean, personally, I don't think I would compare it to Final Fantasy Seven because they're different games. Right. I would say it's as good as Final Fantasy Tactics. Okay, sure. You know? that's fair. And that did also come out in '98 as well. I think. Yeah, yeah. somewhere yeah, around okay. there. Yeah. So okay, that's that's a better comparison. I really, I'm just thinking about like, okay, if you had choices for RPG games, you know, right. it was like, you know, you wouldn't be missing out to get you know shining force 3 it was excellent game but uh well how do you feel about panzer dragoon saga well okay so you know like i told you i i was upset when i heard that i wasn't getting another you know orta basically is what i wanted you know it was like a game like orta was what i wanted right um so when i heard that we're making a an rpg i was just like oh no 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 this is not what that's not what this is you know that's not what this series is and i don't want them to just kind of throw everything out and so you know i wasn't sold i was very skeptical and then of course when i played it it totally changed my mind in fact like i love that battle mechanic so much i wish we would see that again in in any other kind of of game i i, I think i was telling pat like you know mad max fury road the, the movie right and you got you got all those cars driving in the desert and stuff like that imagine a mad max film where you had cars and they were doing like Panzer Dragoon, like jockeying for position and coming around right. to, from the front and firing on the car, you know, and then like blowing up and explosions and stuff. And I was like, I really wish another game would come along and use that that battle mechanic because I think it's so unique, you know. And then, of course, the graphics and everything in the story uh, I did fall in love with Panzer Dragon Saga, and I thought it was I thought it was a great game. It's no, it's not the best RPG. It's actually pretty short, and no, it's not worth two thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars. You know, <laughs> I think that that's the problem. You know, it's like people always find ways of judging games based on stuff that doesn't even really matter. It has nothing to do with the game. You know, right. just based based on its own merits. I think that it's a good game. You know, almost objectively so. Like I think that you know. 
if you have a pulse and you sit down with this game, I think you, there's st- something you could enjoy. Right. Um, but no, I don't. I think that it just gets hyped up so much that people go in with like these soaring expectations and then they're just, you know, like, oh, OK. Well, <laughs> let me tell you, man, I was a Panzer Dragoon Saga hater. OK, for a wow. great many years, because as I told you earlier, I brought it home. I played it. And you returned it. Oh, I am literally like, what the hell? <laughs> this is not Panzer Dragoon. This is not what I wanted to play. Yeah. Why am I, you know, trudging around, running into random battles? And let me tell you, man, that was one of the things that turned me off of RPGs for a long time. I couldn't stand random battles. Okay, so... Sure. I, re- I return the game and no, I'm never going to touch this POS again. They've ruined the series and some time would pass before I would sit down to play it again. And still I could not get into it. Hmm. And it was just like, this game is not what I want it to play. So it would be years before I would sit down and play it again with the intent to actually finish it. Okay, now a buddy of mine finished it and I watched him do it, which is cheating because I didn't actually do it myself. Mm -hmm. But when I sat down, I was able to finally gain some appreciation for it. But still to this day, I think it's not the direction Sega should have gone with Panzer Dragoon on the Saturn. This should have been, Saga should have been a Dreamcast game. That's fair. Saga should have had bigger environments that were more open, Mm -hmm. that were more graphically detailed. The soundtrack, of course, was awesome. I can't say anything bad against it. Oh, sure, yeah. But Panzer Dragoon Saga was very, in my opinion, limited because it was on the Saturn. But then that was it, Team Andromeda, though. You know, they they loved working around those limitations. I kind of feel like, okay, playing devil's advocate, I realize, but like they are one of, if if not the example that I would give of a developer that was able to use and harness those limitations and artistically turn it into something that was much greater. Uh, You know, even like the original Panzer Dragoon was like as a launch title, you know, for the Saturn, I was just like, wow, this looks phenomenal. It floored me back in the day. And then of course you, you really tear it apart. Now you can see that it's just doing a bunch of little visual tricks that are very much working around all of the limitations that they had, you know, uh, and cleverly. So, so, you know, I do agree with you on this. I think that Panzer Saga could have been a better game if it, if they had waited and put it on the Dreamcast. I mean, I really like D2, you know, on the Dreamcast. And I thought and that that's my opinion. I mean, some folks might not like it, but I mean, I like <laughs> I like D2. I like Shenmue. I like a, a lot of these games that are multi-disc games that are able to like give you this bigger universe and, and use the Dreamcast horsepower and, and uh, better resolution textures and and be able to take you from one area to another without it feeling so disjointed, you know? So yes, I agree. Saga was limited and that's both good and bad. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it, it could have been a better Dreamcast game and we could have just had like a really, really polished Panzer Dragoon try or whatever it would have been called, you know, uh, on the Saturn. I would have been happy. I would have been happy with that. That's what I wanted, you know? Um, so I definitely kind of 
turned around and, and kind of found things to like in, in Saga. Um, and I'm glad that I did, but I definitely can tell you that in general, the press and the magazines and stuff and people that I would talk to were kind of disappointed when they heard that Saga was going to be an RPG. Yeah, I think I think if you are given to liking RPGs, right. you're going to go into Saga and you're going to see it for what it is. Right. And that is a well-made game. You know, the difference is, is that if you weren't that big into RPGs, you're going to roll into that and you're just going to, I mean, it's nothing like the previous two games and it's understandable to, you know, be disappointed because of that, because personally, I would love to have seen what a third generation team Andromeda Panzer Dragoon Mm -hmm. would have looked like on the Saturn, because, you know, essentially these guys Like you say, they took a platform that had an architecture that developers despised and they got it to run and look well right from the beginning. So when then Panzer Dragoon 2 shows up, they took everything they learned before. Now it runs at a smoother frame rate. You've got more geometry on the screen. VDP2 is utilized much better. The, The game is just... For a Saturn game, it's gorgeous. That opening scene where you're running with your dragon and you jump off the cliff and you actually feel like without any kind of force feedback, you know, you feel that sense of like in your stomach, you know, like jumping off the cliff, you know, that that sense of gravity and then the wings open and you fly. That that's crazy, like just awesome game design, you know, that they would do oh, something yeah. like that. And and of course they use the whole gritty dystopian thing to their their benefit with the graphics and artistic interpretations of things, you know. Um I agree. A third on-rail shooter like that would have been phenomenal. It would have been incredibly honed, you know. And they gave us stuff like anamorphic widescreen. Right. Uh, and they gave us stuff like, you know, you could use two mission sticks put together, you know, on that game. Right. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but you could do it, you know, right. It was the only one that supported that kind of thing. So again, very forward thinking. And so, yeah, th- just speaking from our memories back in the day, I know we were both upset about that. And personally, I was also a little upset about burning Rangers. When I looked in the magazine, I said, you know, what I really want is this game called deep fear. Oh God. I hope that comes oh, to the West. I really hope man. that comes to the West. Cause I was like a huge resident evil fan and I was like, look at this. This looks like Resident Evil on the Saturn, but it's like an original game, you know, and Sega, uh, this is what I want. You know, this looks so badass. But no, of course, we didn't get it. The PAL territories got it. But yeah, well, you well, you know, dude, you can't talk about the end of the Saturn in the West without talking about Bernie Stoller. You really can't. No, you can't. And it's really important that you talk about the man properly, because I think a lot of people are really unfair to the guy. Um, as you know, he passed away earlier this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was really sad to see that. Um, but I think a lot of people are unfair to Bernie Stoller because they will accuse him of being the reason the Saturn died in the U.S. Right. And you're so that's just blind fanboyism, you know? Yeah. And, and I keep trying to tell folks, it's like, look, man. I appreciate that you feel that way, but the Saturn was going down in flames before Bernie was ever hired by Sega of America. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody was buying the console, man. The Saturn, I mean, the PlayStation was absolutely destroying it. 
in sales. The Nintendo 64 had come on the market in 96, I think. So many mistakes had been made before that. Yes, absolutely. He, he, uh, he inherited a sinking ship. He you did. Know? He and did. So uh, while I don't agree with his choice of, of, you know, saying those words, Saturn is not our future as early as he did. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think even maybe he probably realized that after he did it, you know, because of right. course there was some backlash and he probably realized like, oh, oops, you know, that happens in business though. Right. You know, th- th- is, he, he wouldn't be the first one to do something like that, you know? Right. Um, but of course, you know, running a business is not that easy, especially when it's that big a business and it's already, no. you know, like a, like a, stagecoach that's lost its brakes and it's going downhill, you know? Right. But you know, at the same time, dude, you really have to look at Bernie and understand that while he may not have been the reason the Saturn failed, Mm -hmm. he made Saturn fans miserable. It's true. The last year of its life, because he made the active decision to not bring games to the United States for the Saturn Mm -hmm in favor of concentrating on the Dreamcast, which I think was, you can look at it and say all day long, this was good for business, but it really wasn't good for business. But because for quite literally a year and a half, there were no Sega games on the market in the United States, Mm -hmm. not a single one. How much effort would it have taken for Sega of America to work with Capcom to bring over Marvel superheroes versus street fighter to bring over street fighter zero three, right? You know, these would have been simple games to localize. They already had English versions from the arcade. All they had to do was put the text in man on their end. And at the very least Sega would have stayed on the lips of the hardcore, but instead The Saturn was just dropped by Sega early in 98. These are the last games you're going to get. And then over a year later, before the Dreamcast showed up. And what it really did that is even worse is that it spoiled the confidence that many would have in Sega, you know, and this wasn't the first time. Yeah, this was like the second time or or even the third. You know, I'm not going to count. Sega CD, but I will definitely count the 32X. You know, here's a platform that we introduced and now it's gone. And if you happen to drink the Kool-Aid and listen to us when we told you that this was going to be the next big thing and we were going to support it, you know, well, tough cookies because now you're left with an unsupported hunk of plastic. That was really sad, you know, because uh, I really wanted the Dreamcast to succeed. And I, I, to some extent it did, but I mean, I was I was selling Dreamcasts. You know, I was rooting for the underdog. You know, I I'm a PS2 fan now. You know, of course, and 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 was subsequently. But I mean, again, at that time, like I really wanted the Dreamcast to succeed. But I would have countless people come, and and I'd try to sell them Dreamcast, and they'd be like, you know, yeah, but like I just don't trust Sega anymore. Like they've they've pulled yeah. too many fast ones, too many bad business decisions, and I can't trust that they're going to support it. And that was that was really like hard to hear, you know, from from fellow gamers. Right. Was that they basically didn't trust Sega anymore as a brand. Yeah. And I think that that really is the legacy of Bernie Stoller in a nutshell, man. The guy wasn't responsible for the death of the Saturn. But at the same time, man, that last year, he made the decisions Mm -hmm. that really did shape the public opinion of Sega and affect the people that had already bought the, the platform. You know, instead of at 
you know, when he announced that Saturn's not our future, that easily could have been, we are working on a new platform, but mm-hmm. we are going to support the Saturn for as long as we can. Right. You know, that's what should have come out of Bernie Stoller's mouth, man. Not the Saturn's not our future. When at the time that that was actually said, the Saturn was barely two years old, dude. Right. And developers were still working on titles. Like, yeah. They were, and they were like, can you imagine being a developer who's like right in the middle or right towards the end of a development cycle for something that you've been kicking your own rear end to get out the door? And then you yep. hear the CEO say, it's not our future. And you're just like, what am I doing all this hard work for? Okay. Oh, I'm yeah. just going to ship it as is then. Fine. I'm not putting in, the, I'm not putting in the extra time <laughs> to bring in mouse support or, or do what, you know, Whatever. I'm just going to ship it as it is because, you know, it's not our future, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, and if you're if you're a small studio trying to make money, you know, like that's your bread and butter. And they just like stabbed you in the back. Well, you know, I, I think that's exactly what happened to games like Symphony of the Night, uh, Dracula X. Oh, yeah. You know, on the Saturn, man, it was like they were developing it. Konami was like, you know, gave it to. It, yeah, it was a B team. But, you know, the way that game was released it was nowhere yes. near finished. It was like Order 66. We just, <laughs> yeah. They're like, okay, that's it. Shoot it. Oh, yeah. They were like, okay, just, you know, wrap it up. Give it an ending. Put it wrap in the door. It yep. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, man, it's so sad. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you, 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 you bring up the Dreamcast, and that was the one good thing. Yeah. That came out of the death of the Saturn was this brand new platform that, while it had its own issues that you could talk about all day long. Oh, sure. When the Dreamcast launched in 98 in Japan, it was, again, well before the PlayStation 2. So it was, again, early to the party. But mm-hmm. importing that console it was the Saturn all over again for me mm-hmm. because right out the gate, there was Virtua fighter three and you plugged in Virtua fighter three and it was like, Oh my TV, God. Right? Yeah. yeah. And you know, I'm one of the few American gamers that really love the Virtua fighter series. I don't think there's that many of us. Actually, I think that's one reason why the Saturn failed Right, in, right. In, in the U.S. was because Sega of Japan had these big plans for Virtua Fighter and yeah. didn't understand that Americans didn't want to play Virtua Fighter. Americans wanted like Tekken 3. They wanted like oh. Eddie Gordo doing like the capoeira kicks. Oh, and stuff. Yeah. They, want, they wanted flashy, you know, gimmicky fighters. They didn't want like a thinking man's fighter, no, you know. No, like Virtu- no, Virtua Fighter was way too sterile. for Western taste. And I think that's one of the big mistakes. People talk about Sonic not being a launch title, hurting the Saturn. You want me to tell you what really hurt the Saturn? The Saturn didn't have Eternal Champions as a launch title. Because if Sega had taken Eternal Champions and modeled the next game after the success of Mortal Kombat, giving it blood, fatalities, which they had already touched upon in the Mm -hmm. Sega CD version, I think people would have really been attracted to the Saturn. Like, wow, here's this Mortal Kombat-like game 
Look at all this blood. Look at all these cool hidden characters. Look at this, you know, crazy story. Let's see what this is about. And I think that would have driven so many more customers to the Saturn than Virtua Fighter ever would have in the United States. Yeah, among among other things, it's one of the I mean, there were like I say, there were a lot of fumbles, many, many, many mistakes. uh, And that's one of those things. And I, I could I could agree. I don't know how much of an impact that would have had, but I do agree to some extent. You know, it's funny, though, because when Virtua Fighter hit the arcades in the States, it was it was amazing when it came out. Like it was amazing when it hit yeah. arcades. But again, even when it hit the Saturn, it was a shadow of what the arcade game was. You know, I mean, like all this graphic clipping and stuff. So even if it had been as good as like the the Model One version, um, then you know maybe it would have it would have hit better. You know, it's still it's still anybody could say. Yeah, all anybody could ever say about it was that it was just like, oh god. This doesn't look good. This doesn't bode well for the Saturn. Like, no. if this is what the kind of no. if this is what the kind of graphics it can put out, you know, then this isn't looking good. No, I think I, I think you know, Virtua Fighter was just not the right game for the Western true. market. Yeah, I don't I don't care how it would have looked. I don't care if the Saturn had done it at thirty solid frames, no clipping, no polygon dropout. Mm-hmm. You know, the ring didn't have a uh, polygon, you know, draw in, which right. that, that blows your mind when you think about it. Sure, sure. The actual ring had polygon draw in, man. It was it was janky for sure. <laughs> I mean, now, we did get games like Fighting Vipers, which were we cool. Did. We, we did. got games like Mega Mix, which honestly, if that had come out earlier, you know, and, and they oh, pushed that, that yeah. was much more up, up like the, the Americans alley, you know, in terms of like what we were oh, looking yeah. for in a fighter. And of course, we had Last Bronx, which was a weapons based fighter that was quite good. Oh, um, yeah. I think any of those games are probably, you know, and even dead or alive, you know, uh, it had things <laughs> going for it as well. But, it did. you know, you're right. I mean, I, I, I personally like Virtual Fighter uh, and Virtual Fighter 2, but uh, I was not a fan of uh, 3 TB on, on the Dreamcast. It was definitely, I don't know, what about you? I liked Virtua Fighter 3, but that was just because I liked the Virtua Fighter series so much. And I had played 3 in the arcade quite a bit and the when the Dreamcast came home it wasn't quite arcade perfect but it looked enough like the arcade to make me happy and you know I think by then man expect particularly by the time the US Dreamcast came out dude you had stuff like Soul Calibur on the market which was ridiculous that game was oh, so good dude and you you put Virtua Fighter 3 beside you know Soul Calibur and it's like oh my god and it's like not only did it make it look bad but it's like the gameplay between the two it's like one is a snooze fest and right. the other one are you know color trailing you know weapons Sparking against one another. Yeah. If you watch Virtua Fighter 2 or Virtua Fighter 3, any of those games being played at the highest level by folks who like know what they're doing, it's actually quite entertaining. It's oh, it, it because you're seeing the game perform as it should, you know, as you Suzuki thought, you know, but most people are just, you know, that go in and they're just like mashing the buttons and kind of, you know, going for ring outs and stuff. 
it is kind of a snooze fest, right? You know, compared oh, to is. like Eddie Gordo's, you know, helicopter kick or whatever that is, or, you know, the flame fists and stuff. And of course you had SNK doing all their really over the top stuff. So it definitely left something to be desired. But of course in Japan, it was just phenomenally popular. Oh yeah. Uh, different this, culture there. Different man. culture. This heady arcade game where you really had to, you know, hone your skill at like real ish oh, yeah. combat you know that's that that's sold over there and people don't understand that the entire reason why the saturn was viable in japan when it was was entirely because of the virtual fighter games like people really don't understand how popular yeah it was it sold one to one at the launch of the console man it's like yeah. People bought the Saturn in Japan for Virtua Fighter, and then they bought more of them for Virtua Fighter 2. And then they bought more for Sakura Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Like, it, it is really night and day, like, culturally. Like, oh, sure, sure, you've got folks here that are like, you know, they know and they, they like Sakura Wars and stuff like that, but a lot of folks just don't get it, you know? Oh, no. I'm actually one of those, dude. I don't get it myself. I mean... Here's the thing is I can sit and play it and appreciate it for its design. Mm -hmm. But dude, hearing those girls drone on and on, mm -hmm. I just I just want to cut the thing off, man, because it's like those sections go on for freaking ever. It's a lot it's, of dialogue. It's a lot of dialogue, man. And there are gamers out there that don't want to sit through that. Right. It's a hard recommend, man. You really have to know a certain gamer type. Yeah. to recommend it to because most Western gamers I feel are going to look at that and just be like, Oh man, I can't stand that. I mean, I'm with you. Like I, I love the music. I love the artwork. I appreciate so much about it, but I definitely get kind of bored with the dialogue. And then it's like, if I'm, <laughs> oh, if, I'm yeah. if I'm pressing the button to just get through it, it's like, then that kind of defeats the purpose. Cause like the yeah. whole purpose of the game is like to sit through this and kind of like, you know, get to know these characters and stuff. And I want to get to the battle. Right. You know, so like yeah. games like Persona 3, Persona 4 kind of like did it better. Like they, they found a good balance between, you know, dungeons yeah. and dialogue and, and extracurricular activities and stuff like that, you know. Um, but, right. you, you know, so, yeah, it was it, but it was hugely popular in Japan, like cannot be understated how much of a console seller that was, you know, like how it was almost like a national holiday when it was released, you know? Yeah. And there were, and there were what, two of them on the Saturn, I think. Oh so, yeah. Two of them on the Saturn and several others on Dreamcast. Uh, yeah. Dreamcast. And, uh, you know, we would get like what, I think one localized version on the Wii or something. Uh, yeah. yeah it's crazy. Like, so quite a difference uh, uh, culturally speaking. And, you know, I think that's one of the when you talk about the Saturn and Sega's success or lack of success, I should say, with the Saturn, you really have to understand the cultural differences that led to Sega's ruination. Because, you know, Sega of America and Sega of Japan famously did not get along. No. And I think that that imbalance is really what helped drag the company down. Mm -hmm. The company never really stood a chance because nobody in the company wanted to work together. You know, you had Yuji Naka complaining about Sonic Extreme using the Knights engine. You had, yeah. you know, riffs, you know, riffs at Sega of America with uh, 
Sega Technical Institute before the Saturn even got on the market. Right. You know, and I mean, just you had this long history of these guys, you know, professionally not getting along. They just, they hated one another. Yeah. You know, people call it professional jealousy. I don't really think that's what it was. I just think it was a clash of cultures. You know, Sega of Japan had it in their head what they thought was going to work. And Sega of America had it in their head what they thought it was, you know, mm-hmm. what they thought was going to work. And I don't really think either one of them was wrong because if they had truly worked together, I think they could have found a balance between the two that would have made the Saturn a success. But without working together, no balance was struck. And the Saturn, of course, suffered, you know, all the problems that it ended up suffering. And of course, I have to be honest, like back then, I didn't know most of this stuff. You know, I've learned a lot of this in hindsight. Yeah, I've I've read, you know, Sam Pettis book. I've I've read a lot of other Sega history stuff, but back in the day, we really didn't have, you know, we didn't really go behind the curtain that this far, you know. Oh, uh, no. you know, you knew what was on the surface. You knew what the face that they put forward and when they said stuff like Saturn's not our future, you know, that pretty much said it all. Right. But but that's all you really had to go on. Like we didn't know like behind the scenes that the company was like tearing itself apart internally between the two division, you know, Sega of America and Sega of Japan, you know, going back right. and forth, just not getting along. I didn't really know that back in the day. That's for sure. No, I, I think that's what a lot of people that look at video games really need to understand is what we have learned in hindsight is so much more detailed than what we knew at the time. At the time, you only got bits and pieces of information, typically from gaming magazines. Right. And you you never really knew what to believe even then, because half the stuff that they put in the gaming magazines and like the gossip section never happened anyway. It never came to be. Right. So, so you really didn't know what to believe. Is any of this true? They were telling me about this new game system last month and, you know, I haven't heard another peep about it. You know, they said that Nintendo was going to release, you know, X game and that never happened. They would like sweep it under the rug. Like that just stopped talking about it. And you'd be like, wait a a second. Like I bought this next issue because I'm waiting to hear what's going to happen. Okay. You buy the next issue. You're like, okay, what is going on? Like, why aren't, you know, oh, they just like kind of like quietly, like, oh, oh, like swept it under the rug and hoped that like nobody's going to notice, you know? Yeah. And how many times did that happen? I mean, how many times did a game get talked about and then never see a release? How many times did you hear about a Sega console? Oh, yeah. That never was released. There was that Genesis 32X hybrid never released. There was that Sega Saturn unit that had like the built in Netlink and all that stuff. Yeah, sure. The Pluto. yeah, never came to be, man. Just right. stuff would show up and disappear. And all you had to go on was whether a magazine said anything about it. It wasn't until the internet come along, came along. And then it was years into the internet before any real detail right. came along explaining to you what was really going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that that's one of those things that I, I made a, a video on my YouTube channel called The Inexplicable Death of the Dreamcast. And people took issue with the, the, the name of the episode because they're like, what do you mean inexplicable? Everybody knew the Dreamcast was going to fail. And I'm just sitting there like, no, 
you didn't because when the Dreamcast launched in 1999 in the U.S., there was this fresh wave of, man, Sega has really turned it around. Mm -hmm. And for that first year there, you were like, wow, the Dreamcast is it's. It's talked about in gaming magazines on a very positive note. Yeah. The reviews for a lot of its games are coming in. People are really loving a lot of the software on the Dreamcast. From our point of view as consumers in 99 and 2000, yeah. Sega has turned it around. They did almost everything they could to make it a success. And it was arguably a, a success. You know, its launch was a success. I know I sold a hell of a lot of those things, but it can't be understated the kind of power by that point that Sony had in the games industry, the kind of power that they had to be able to say, just wait, you know, save your money, just wait for our console. Like who, who can do that? Like, that's crazy. It is. And you are absolutely right. I don't think it's wrong to say people expected the PlayStation 2 to outsell the Dreamcast. Mm -hmm. But that's not what people are saying, man. Right. They're saying you should have known the Dreamcast was going to fail. At that time, you didn't know that. Even if you believe the PlayStation 2 was going to outsell the Dreamcast, that didn't mean Sega was going out of business. Right. You know, all that all that meant was is that the Dreamcast was still going to be popular and and maybe be second place. The Nintendo 64 survived in second place behind the PlayStation just fine. Yeah, and you know, when you played games like PSO, you know, online and and uh and saw like just how popular and and how uh, you know, cutting edge that was. It gave you a lot of, at least me, it gave me a lot of hope for, you know, Sega and Dreamcast's future because I was like, this is phenomenal. Like, you know, and, and like, Sony's not doing this and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't end up doing it for a couple of years. Um, right. So, you know, you know, we'll probably have to do like a Dreamcast one <laughs> another time, you know, <laughs> but yeah, cause there were definitely some things, you know, that it would have been better if they'd done differently, but you just didn't, we know so much more in hindsight now. Memory is a fickle thing, you know, and you can honestly sometimes conflate, you know, things that you've learned in hindsight to things that you knew back in the day. I'll be the first to admit sometimes it's not you can. Yeah, it's not that easy to remember that. Oh, yeah. You know, if I put it in perspective, I really didn't know all this back then. I just I just knew the little bits and pieces that I was drip fed through the magazines and stuff. And when when yeah. that's all, you know, of course, it's easy for fanboys to get angry and, and blame everything on Bernie Solar. Right. You know, because it's like oh, he's yeah. an easy scapegoat. Right. I mean, he, yeah. he, he put his foot in his mouth in a big way and just made it really easy to, you know, just extrapolate what we know and, and blame it all on him. But of course it was just so much more complicated. But you know, everybody has their heroes and villains when it comes to, you know, who did what and how they did it. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, you know, Tom Kalinske was the man at Sega. He right. was the reason the dream. I mean, the uh, Genesis was a success and people don't understand that, the Genesis had built an entire brand and attitude before Kalinsky ever came. Right. Kalinsky just had the good sense to know to pack Sonic in with the Genesis instead of Altered Beast. You know, so everybody loves to raise up their hero or crush their villain when it comes to this stuff. And I have found that the truth is always in between somewhere. Yeah. yeah. 
these people are not guilty of a lot of the stuff you say they are. And the stuff that you give them credit for, they may not be really deserving of that. There's there's always some truth um, or there's always a middle road to the truth sure. when it comes to these guys. And, you know, I think that really is true of Sega of America and Sega, you know, of Japan when it comes to the Saturn, because people are very, very beholden to their belief that one or the other is responsible for the Saturn failing. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'll sit here and tell you, I lived it, I've read the literature that has been written about it, and I am telling you, unflinchingly, both sides of this company, Japan and America, committed countless sins that sent the Saturn spiraling down in flames, dude. Neither one of them were all wrong. Neither one of them were all right. And that's just how it is, man. Yeah. Meanwhile, Nintendo of America had a much closer synergy with a Nintendo of Japan. Oh, and, you yeah. know, they, they, they told the, the conservative line, you know, they said, this is who we are. This is our corporate identity. This is who we are as a, as a company that goes back all the way to, you know, playing cards. And um, we're going to uphold this tradition, you know, of of being conservative, you know, not putting out the edgy titles, you know, doing everything the way that Nintendo of Japan, uh, you know, because Nintendo is just a very Japanese company, you know. And so it's like uh, Nintendo of America was just like, we're going to uphold a lot of that. We're going to we're going to make sure that that comes across and that, of course, we're going to curate all of our titles and try not to put out, you know, they, they really, really were strict about what stuff they would put on on the nes and then on the snes and uh you know of course some stinkers came through but uh, again you know it was like that was part of their part of the culture part of the line that they towed i would say that there was just better teamwork between nintendo of america and nintendo of japan and that that's gonna be a, a winning recipe for any company you know if you don't have to deal with infighting you know or constant disagreements oh yeah I mean, really, if you think about it, the constant fighting, I don't really see how a game company can survive. No. You know, with that, because if Sega was going to survive the juggernaut that was Sony, yeah, that company had to be on the Fair. same page. Mm-hmm. They had to be like, look, we need to work together because otherwise this company is going to wipe us from you know, the face of business. And eventually that's exactly what happened, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know. I, I, it boggles the mind when you go back and you read some of the stuff that Sega as a business, as a corporate entity put up with from their employees, man. I mean, the I mentioned earlier, the stuff about Yuji Naka, man, it's like, Man, I hate to say this, man, but if I had been in charge of Sega at the time and this dude is throwing a fit, threatening to leave because we are trying to salvage a game that's going to possibly make or break our financial situation in an entire region, I would have shown that guy the door. Sorry, man. I know you are a great game creator, but the strife that you are creating within the company is going to be irrecoverable. He was a Go- god, though. Oh, the dude <laughs> right? was. that Dude, when I say that, I say it without any shame at all admitting 
the dude was a pure talent. You know, from way back in the early Genesis days where he would almost single-handedly program a game himself. Mm -hmm. You cannot, you cannot argue the talent of Naka, man. That dude, he was awesome. But at the same time, I think that went to his head. Yep. I, I think that made him look down on the people he worked with, which was evident in how he treated the American members of uh, Sega Technical Institute while they were making Sonic 2. Um, I don't know, man. I don't think that personality in a company like Sega, as small as they were facing the competition they were, yeah, there was no way that was healthy for that business, man. All that was going to do was drag it down and hurt them on a level where they couldn't afford it. And that's exactly what happened because Sonic Extreme didn't get released. It was canceled. And even though Sonic Extreme had no hope of saving the Saturn, it still could have sold a few million units to help Sega out financially at a time when Sega needed help financially. Yeah. And it's like, that's kind of the story uh, of Saturn's history is like, there's a laundry list. Honestly, there, I think we've done this before. Like the what ifs uh, in our what ifs cast, like early days of the Shiro <laughs> podcast, just there is a laundry list of things that you could tack up on the cork board or whatever, like of, you know, how they should have been done differently or whatever. And it isn't any one thing that's going to be a silver bullet, you know, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's many, many things, you know, but again, I totally agree with you. I, I, I think that, uh, there was just so many, so many missteps, unfortunately, but still the console is great. It was a great console, even though Sega didn't have the, I guess, foresight to go all in on 3D, like, like the PlayStation did, like, even though they didn't have the foresight to see that, like this paradigm in gaming that they had created in the arcades was what everyone was going to want, you know, for like the coming decade, you know, that that's what everyone was going to basically overnight, you know, want to be taking all of their gameplay into the third dimension. The fact that they created this console still, you know, to be kind of a very traditional console that's really, really strong 2D, despite all that, we still had this amazing console that could have lasted quite a bit longer on the market you know um i definitely agree like we we should have had the saturn in 98 and it, there should have been more of a even transition into the dreamcast you know um, i think i think that that alone just that loyalty showing a faith that you know even though we admit you know we made some mistakes we're going to continue to support this console uh for those of y'all who have have bought into it you know i think that a lot of folks would have had more faith in them, you know, and yeah. I wouldn't have heard as many, as many kids coming up saying, you know, yeah, I, I trusted them before, not again. And you know, that really is the big, the big key right there to everything is this, the way the transition played out between the Saturn and the Dreamcast was about as bad as it possibly could have gone. You know, like you say, uh, Dreamcast comes out, people are afraid to buy Sega at this mm -hmm. point because 32X goes down in flames with like 40 games for it. You know, Sega, you know, says Saturn's not our future two years into its life. And, and the realization really starts to hit people. Sega is releasing game consoles that die really quick. 
And that really was a real, you know, killer to consumer confidence. And, you know, there, you can't recover from that, man. Like no matter how good you are, when you come back, it's hard to recover from that. And not every consumer was like you too, like where you could support three consoles in your household. Like the average household could support, you know, like one game console in their house, Uh, either, either because of, you know, like rules that the parents implemented or just that it wasn't, you know, if you were a hardcore gamer, sure. And you had disposable income, you were lucky enough to be able to not have to worry about the console wars. You were like, well, you know, I'm going to benefit from, from all of them, you know? And uh, if they're competing, you know, that's better for me because they're going to make, you know, better games, hopefully. Um, And and you could enjoy all three, you know, but it's true. The console wars really happened because, you know, kids had to choose sides. You know, you, you really were lucky if you, if you could convince your parents to get you a console, or if you worked a summer job and, and it worked up the money to be able to buy a console, you really had to choose, you know? Um, And it, and it wasn't the, it wasn't like the adult, hobby that it is now of course you know like more adults game than kids i think <laughs> it's, yeah i it's think you're statistic, right you know because yeah. uh, a lot of us are in our you know 20s 30s and 40s you know uh even uh, even 50s you know i mean my dad is in his 60s any games you know so um, right but but it wasn't that way back then it, there was it a wasn't. stigma and it was definitely thought of as like a kids or a teens deal you know that you grow out of or something like that you know like right. uh but yeah so you know, you had to choose. And, and it's like you say, people had anxiety about the Dreamcast because, you know, they saw Sonic Adventure and they're like, well, this smokes. This looks amazing. So, yeah, maybe I really want to give Sega a second chance, but I don't know. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> there were a lot of amazing games on those other consoles, too. But is it going to be like the only amazing game? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you just didn't know. Yeah. But, you know, really, if you look at it, the Dreamcast didn't fail or fall off the market, you know, because of lack of sales, the Dreamcast actually sold pretty well in its short time on the market. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, it certainly got enough good games to keep going, you know, but it, it was another, it was another situation where Sega abandons a platform and, you know, that, that, be- that becomes you know, a constant in Sega's history. Abandon the platform early, get another one out. Abandon, get another one out. I mean, the only time that wasn't done was with the Genesis, and it was only not done in the United States because Sega really has only had that one real success of the stuff they actually did. Now, you can talk about the Master System in places like Europe and Brazil, but Sega licensed the master system out to those regions. Other mm-hmm. companies released it in those regions. So they were soaking up a lot of those profits, dude. So it's not the same as. Yeah. There were extenuating circumstances that absolutely. fed into those, uh, absolutely. those success stories for sure. You know, absolutely. So Sega wasn't just sitting back rolling in all those profits by themselves, man. They had to share that stuff out. You know, so Sega wasn't this big, healthy company like a lot of people at the time thought they were. Sega was always a small company. Hell, for a good chunk of the 80s there in the in the early 80s, they were a small company, part of a bigger company. And then they were sold to CSK, who 
then took it over, and then again they were a small company, part of a much bigger company. But you know, you know where Sega <laughs> was king, though, right? Undisputed in in my arcade. Like when oh, I went yeah. to my arcade, hands down, no competition. Sorry, Namco. Sorry, SNK. <laughs> like nobody, nobody made arcade games like Sega did. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. like as a kid playing Top Skater and Crazy Taxi and the fishing games, you know, and like the Star Wars, you know, and just like Sega just pumped out phenomenal arcade game after phenomenal arcade game. And so that was their heritage. You know, we make great arcade games, the best arcade games. And uh, and then, you know, seeking to bring that experience home, you know, it was uh it was a different time, you know, <laughs> That's oh, all it, I can say. It, it really was because, you know, bringing the arcade home served Sega really well in the late eighties and up through the mid nineties. The problem mm-hmm. is, is that Sony changed the game. Yeah, they really Sony, did. Sony changed the game because they courted a bunch of third parties that started making home releases that were more interesting than a lot of the stuff you were seeing in the arcade. And Sega didn't keep up with that. Sega didn't evolve, man. That, that was a real big problem. You you said it right there. Sony changed the game in every way possible. Like, you know, they changed how games are developed. They changed the size of a development team, you know, with these easy dummy tools that you could use to get a game up and running. Like, you could have bigger teams, you could have larger budgets and, and like you could get these ideas up and running sooner, you know, because you have better development tools. They, but they really changed that because, you know, Sega was from the old school of, you know, coders who were like working close to the metal, so to speak, you know, doing assembly and stuff like that, really knowing these chipsets inside and out and programming form where you had Sony was just like, we know that we are going to have to hit the ground running and we're going to be coming from behind. So we have to give these developers every chance to succeed. So we're just going to make it stupid simple to make games for this thing, you know? And we're going to make the, you know, different hardware effects be like something you can literally just turn on or off, you know, with a toggle switch, you know? So they changed the game that way. They changed the game in terms of like the kind of gameplay that we would come to expect, you know? Right. You know, and then of course, you know, they were cutthroat in their tactics and and uh, courting certain developers to just do work only for them, you know, uh, release stuff exclusively on the console, you know? Yeah. Um, and they changed the game in a lot of ways. Can't not be understated. I have to give them credit for that because they, they literally changed the game industry. Yeah. And I, and I think that was another problem that really Sega suffered Sega really, I don't think they understood the battle that was ahead of them. As a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. I know they didn't understand it because if you go back and you read some of the history of what transpired between like 94 and 95, Sega is worried about Atari's Jaguar, for God's sake, which is the reason why the 32X was created. I mean... Mm -hmm. Are you sitting here telling me that Sega didn't have the wherewithal to understand that Atari didn't have the money to compete with anybody 
But they were a games company. Oh my! Sony was Sony wasn't a games company, right? No, Sony wasn't. <laughs> but Sony had the money to get the games experience they needed, and that's exactly yep. what they did. They went out and they courted a third party. You know, uh, uh, just a, a a freaking dream team of third parties, and said, "Here, we have created this hardware." Honestly, dude, the PlayStation could have been weaker than the Saturn at 3D, and I still think the PlayStation would have won. Hell, they stole, they stole Sega's marketing guy <laughs> as their president, <laughs> and then he dropped the 299. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like they they were cutthroat for sure. And dude, that was another thing that you really have to understand. Sony was capable of undercutting Sega no matter what. Yep. If Sega had come out and said when they launched their system early, aha, we are here early and we are $299, take that Sony, then instead of saying $299 at E3, Sony would have said $249 at E3. Yeah. It Sony still would have won that battle no matter what, because they were capable of winning it. And, you know, I think that's why Nintendo stayed out of that fight, man. Nintendo was doing okay with the Super Nintendo and the Super Famicom. And they were sort of like, you know what? Sega and Sony are really going to go at this head to head. We are going to pull back a year or two. Let's see where the dust settles from this. Right. Because they had enough cash reserves. Like Nintendo had exactly. huge cash reserves. And they were putting out, you know, these quasi 3D games like, you know, Donkey Kong Country 2, 3, you know, uh, all they, they were putting out enough stuff, Killer Instinct and stuff that was able to like keep the momentum, you know, keep the, yep. the SNES coasting, you know, and that's yep. what it did. It coast, you know, you even Genesis for a while coasted on games like vector man and stuff like that. And it could have gone much longer, you know, it's it crazy how it's crazy how there, there are those folks who like adopt a console early. And then there's a bunch of other folks who keep buying games for the older console that they already have, you know, wow. We're, we're way off topic. <laughs> <laughs> we are man. But you know, I, it comes easy, you know, it's just all this stuff is just flowing, you know, um, you're just getting back to our main topic. You know, 98 was a crazy year. It really was. It was, uh, I didn't see it coming. I really didn't. I, I, yeah. I feel foolish to say that, but yeah, like back in the day, I did not see that coming. I thought, okay, it's clear now in 97, it's clear now that Saturn is third place, you know, no ifs or buts about that. Like the Nintendo 64 just shot off like a rocket and just, uh, it didn't have a lot of games, but it had a lot of really good games or at least, you know, folks were buying into it for sure. Right. But I was happy to be a Saturn fan regardless, you know, and I thought, okay, you know, well, I'll just continue being just like I was a GameCube fan <laughs> in the next gen. You know, I was a GameCube fan once the Dreamcast died out because I needed something, you know, to gravitate. <laughs> and, that, and that was, again, like the third rung, you know. Um, but I was fine with it, you know. I was like, there was a yeah. ton of good games on, on the GameCube. Well, you know, that I think a lot of people don't realize that is even when a game system doesn't sell well yeah. or it's in last place or whatever, if you focus on the library enough you're going to pick out the good games right and a, and a lot of times you tend to appreciate those games more mm -hmm. because you know you're not getting a lot of them a lot of times if it's a third place system it's usually an experimentation type of thing with it i mean that's the whole reason we got panzer dragoon saga you know it's kind of like 
Team Andromeda had made these other two games. Sega wanted an RPG. It's kind of like, oh, well, let's take this IP and let's make an RPG out of it and see how it goes. And you get a creativity when you have developers and companies looking for that, you know, that special thing to make to to draw gamers to their system. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what made the Saturn what it was. Sega and its programmers were willing to experiment and they created stuff like Nights into Dreams. They created stuff like Dragon Force. They created experiences that you couldn't play on the PlayStation or Nintendo 64. Absolutely. And on the Dreamcast, you'd get stuff like Space Channel 5. And you'd get <laughs> yeah. weird stuff like Res and Seaman. Uh, you know, the Seaman, the thing I miss so much, almost breaks my heart about Sega, is just that they used to take so many risks, oh, yeah. you know, and I just miss, I miss that, you know, like just the amount of risk taking, it was like, there was no, no tomorrow. We're going to do this now, you know, YOLO because, because now it's like, and this is just my own opinion, folks, you know, you get stuff like Sonic Frontiers, which is essentially, you know, the PSO two. Uh, it, it's just, you know, kind of like a reskin, you know, of that. And uh, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the stuff, a lot of the choices that they make are just more safe now. Yeah. And just not innovating, not doing anything risky because you got to stay profitable, right? You know, and it's like back then it was like living like there was no tomorrow, you know, putting out games, all different kinds, you know, and messing around with like online way before the world was ready for it and stuff. And I just miss that so much, you know, that's the Sega I absolutely adore. Well, you know, that's probably the saddest result of all of this, whether it be Saturn or Dreamcast. When Sega was essentially enveloped by Sammy, Mm -hmm. that was pretty much when that Sega died. You know, that's when we lost Sega, man, because when Sammy took it over and it became a holdings company, you have to really understand what a holdings company is. You know, they hold the IPs of these companies. They hold the properties of these companies and they aren't going to do anything to take a risk. They are going to take the easy route to secure an absolute guaranteed profit. Mm -hmm. And that's what Sega is today. Sega is part of a holdings company and they are going to go the easiest route possible. You know, most, if not all of the developers programmers, game creators, designers that were part of Sega pre-Sammy are no longer at Sega now, you know? So it's a completely different company. And and if you want innovation, you got to look to the fans themselves. Yeah. Stuff like Sonic Mania, you know? Abs- it's like it, Absolutely. It, it came from the fans. You know, I hate to say it, but yeah. it's like that's the, the, a lot of the Sega touched a lot of the fans in, in, a, in a really impactful way and left a lot of us wanting more and, it's almost like we've had to pick up the torch and keep going, yeah. you know? So it's crazy to think, you know, the kind of stuff that's happening in the homebrew scene and, and, uh, and, and the translation patches and stuff like that. Cause fans are just like, well, Sega's not going to do it. So we're going to make it happen. You know? Yeah. I, it's it, the, the people that do the patches and the translations, like I said earlier, what you're providing you're making the dreams of kids that are now grown finally come true. Yep. You're allowing them to play games that they wanted to play so badly 25 years ago. You know, 
they're finally able to do it. They're finally able to sit down and go, wow, this is what this game was. I wish I was able to play this back then because it's so good. Mm -hmm. You know, those people finally allowed me to play Dragon Force 2. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how badly I wanted to play that when it came out, but how, you know, incredibly sad I was knowing it was never going to see an English translation. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's brutal, man. And, and that's the sad part about it is, is, you know, so many games for the Saturn went untranslated. They went without, you know, English localizations or whatever language localization for whatever country you may have been in, because the Saturn really wasn't popular anywhere outside of Japan. Yeah. You know, well in Portugal, <laughs> well, have you heard about that? Right. You know, yeah, uh, again, I've, again, extenuating <laughs> circumstances for sure. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, ab- absolutely, man. But you know, you're, you're right about the creativity thing. I think really if, if, if we wanted to bring the episode to a close, it's been two hours, right. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would just say this. I think Sega's biggest mistake at this point is not leveraging its fans. Mm-hmm. Sega has fans that know how to program, know how to make games. They were Sega fans when they were kids. They loved Sega properties. The best thing Sega could do now is just put out an open invitation to anyone that can make games to come in and pitch them something. You know, what's your idea for an old Sega IP? You want to bring Shinobi back? Tell us about it. Sega has so much to fall back on. And there's so many, you know, game developers. There's so many designers. There's so many artists. There's so many sound composers out there that would love to come back. Yeah. And contribute to a project, even if it wasn't a big budget project, just contributing to a pot, a project, a labor of love. They would do it. And Sega has got to realize that at some point. Yeah, I really uh, I really hope that they do. I don't know if that's uh, naive to think that'll ever happen. But, uh, you know, I just want to see Sega innovate again. That's all I, I. I love Sega. I love the franchises that they created. And I just want to see those franchises innovate again. I don't want to see them dragged through the mud. You know, I don't want to see them just go to waste either. You know, I'm tired of seeing 3d Sonic games, man. I really am. (laughs) You know, how, how, how many, you know, 3d Sonic games do we really need? I mean, yeah. Good God, man. I mean, I understand that Sega makes money off of Sonic. You know, Sonic sells whether it's a good game or not. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like, you know, you have other old IPs, you know, do something else for God's sake. Right. It's true. (laughs) Ah, you know, it's a, it's been a a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's been a (laughs) long time, honestly, since we've been able to chat, uh, I think the last time was like just a phone call, but, and when you did, it was like, man, we should do this more often. We should uh, try to do like a podcast sometime. So I'm glad we finally got to make it happen. You know? Yeah. Actually, next time we do this, I want you to pick the uh, topic. We're going to talk about what you want to talk about. Sure. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I got some ideas for sure. Yeah. All right, man. Yeah. Well, until next time, guys, I, I hope that you enjoyed listening to this cast. And uh, thank you so much, Mel, Sega Lord X, for joining us. We really appreciate you. And, and this has been Saturn Dave reminding you to play your Sega Saturn. You must play Sega Saturn. And until next time, peace. I'm not